hang for apostasy, saying she had renounced Islam by marrying a Christian man. She was also sentenced to receive 100 lashes for adultery because the court deemed that her marriage was not valid. You're listening to the news on RTHK. morning and welcome to Friday's Money for Nothing. If you're wondering why Brian Curtis is sounding a little different this morning, it's because he's gone on holiday. My name is Enid Choi and I'll be hosting this program for the next two weeks. Eurozone growth slows apart from Germany, piling more pressure on the ECB to roll out new stimulus measures at its June meeting. There were bad news too from the US overnight as industrial production unexpectedly fell in April and Walmart, the world's biggest retailer, saw a 5% drop in net income. But on the plus side, consumer price index saw the biggest increase since last summer and the number of jobless claims fell to the lowest in seven years. Great news for the economy today. Inflation, unemployment claims, industrial production, two out of three then. Fed rate hikes won't be long now. Core CPI inflation up 0.2% for a second month in a row. Now, that's the bearish summary from Chris Rupke, chief financial economist at the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi UFJ. We'll be asking our guests for their take on the global economy later on. And these are the people we are honoured to have on the show today. Sajajit Das, former investment banker turned financial commentator and author. Marcel Tillion, Japan economist at Capital Economics. And Enzio von Fail of Asset Manager MCL Partners. Now back to Europe. Inflation is still ranging from 0.5% to 0.9%, way below the ECB's 2% target. Is the central bank worried? Here's the view from ECB Vice President Vito Constantio. We expect your inflation to remain low for a prolonged period, meaning the rest of this year. That said, we still see no distinct signs of deflation in the euro area for the time being. In case you think he's being a little bit too complacent, he also said this. We have stressed that uh, we are determined to act swiftly if required and we uh, do not uh, rule out further monetary policy easing. Now, it wasn't a very pretty picture from the markets overnight. U.S. stocks fell the most in a month. The Dow fell 1% to 16,446, and the S&P lost 0.9% to 1,870. The yield on 10-year U.S. government bonds fell below 2.5% for the first time since last, uh, last summer. And it's the same sort of story in Europe. Yields on good quality government bonds like the U.K. and Germany fell to the lowest level in a year as investors sold stocks. Stocks. The FTSE fell 38 points to 6840, and the DAX fell 98 points to 9656. And here's how the Asian markets are looking. Pretty grim too. The Nikkei opened down 1.5% to 14,083. The Aussie ASX index is down 6 points to 5,483. And the Seoul market is down 8 points at 2,001 points. Now, a lot of people have been surprised by the drop in bond yields recently, which of course means that the 
bond prices have gone up. Now, before the consensus was that the global economy was on track, QE was going to end soon, interest rates would go up. Well, why would you want to stay in bonds? Well, John Flayhive, Director of Fixed Income at BNY Mellon Wealth Management, is among the many bond advisors who have to admit that he's been wrong. If you pulled most of the uh, strategists at the beginning of the year, everybody thought things were going to go higher as far as yield is concerned. And, yeah, that's the surprise of the capital markets this year is they didn't go higher. They actually went lower. Our original range was 35 to 2.5, and today we're wrong. So um, if everybody had another chance to do it, I'm sure they would uh, redo their ranges. 3 to 2 seems a more logical range for the remainder of the year. Well, he was talking about the uh, U.S. 10-year yield there. When Well, he thinks rates can go lower, but he's not necessarily telling clients to invest in bonds. I think the lessons learned in 2011 and 12 is you can't be overly predictive about what will happen with rates. I never thought in my career that the 10-year would be below 2%. So things can happen. And that's not too long ago. So people in my seat are managing fixed income portfolios are well aware that in the near term, interest rates can go to unbelievably absurd low levels from a logical perspective, but it doesn't mean they're going to stay there. So I think a lot of analysts and Predictors are going to say, sure, we'll have room to go lower. But in, inevitably, the value proposition today within the fixed income markets and the low level of rates certainly aren't there, leading our clients, again, to look more toward other areas as opposed to fixed income about, like the equity markets. Well, so that's John Flayhive, Director of Fixed Income at BNY Mellon Wealth Management, talking about the big conundrum in the market today. Is deflation or inflation the dominant trend in the coming months? That's what I'm going to ask Sajjajit Das, the well-known financial commentator and author, later on in the show. I'll also talk to Marcel Tillion, Japan, Japan economist at Capital Economics, who's going to give his interpretation of yesterday's stellar GDP data out of Tokyo. But first, investment strategy with Enzio von Fail, founder of MCL Partners. Welcome back to the studio, Enzio. Thank you very much. Now, Enzio, I wonder if we are on the brink of major shifts in the market. Now, first, everyone's been confounded by the sharp drop in bond yields this year. Um, when last year, we were all talking about the great rotation from bond to stocks, right? And now the great recovery story in the US and Europe seem to be faltering somewhat. And EM stops, emerging market stops, are, are stocks are starting to look favorable again. So, so first of all, should we be buying bonds? Yes is the answer because there's going to be a continued flight to quality and particularly in the developed market. I think that what what you've been finding is that the economic time has been overrated. what, What I mean by that is that people have been feeling that the global recovery is going to go up and up and up and away and it's all kind of doom or gloom thinking which is a little bit churlish in my mind. I've I've been advising our clients that one really has to see these things more as a less exciting growth cycle where the growth cycles are much less pronounced. And that's what would tie in with this disappointment in Europe and, of course, the disappointment in the global growth prospects. Bonds, definitely, yes, but only high-quality paper. 
Now, Europe, um, as I said earlier, the numbers out yesterday were pretty grim. Eurozone growing just 0.2% in the first quarter, just half of consensus forecast. Italy contracted and France didn't grow at all. Um, so, um, so you're saying that this is not necessarily painting a disastrous picture. It's just a, a reminder that we have to be a little bit realistic about growth. Yes, I think that one has to remove the extravagant expectations that Europe is on that recovery traction, having lived there or, or sort of track. I've lived there for many years. I can tell you one thing, the key thing that they're not doing is Abe's third arrow, which is to put reforms in place. It is telling that there's stellar high unemployment in Europe and at the same time, stellarly high vacancy rates. In other words, there are many unfulfilled jobs We can thank the politicians for their ridiculous education policy, not introducing things like vocational training on a Europe-wide basis for this mess. So until the structural reforms in Europe come through, brackets open, which they won't, brackets closed, you're going to find the Europe becomes the Japan of of Europe or um, Japan becomes the Europe of the Far East. They're both sinking ships. But how far are we away from um, sinking back into the debt crisis mode in Europe? Because, you know, the inflation is, is so low. I mean, if Europe ends up being in a deflationary spiral again, then the value of the debt they have to repay will go up and all hell will break loose again. It's a good question. We, with our 35 years of providing commission-free advice at a cost savings of 97% to clients, what we're saying is that there's actually very strong inflation in Europe and worldwide, but it's of cost push nature. Watch those commodity prices going through the roof. We know that nickel has just fallen recently, but it was also up 50%. Coffee, wheat, leather prices all going straight up. So... The other point that I would make is that until Europe really gets into a structural reform mode, you will find things continuing to sink. And that means that the U.S. and emerging markets will continue or will become ever more the markets of choice. Uh, I, I noticed that you managed to sneak in a little ad in there for Absolutely. yourself, Enzio. Absolutely, have to do, yes. <laughs> um, now, um, but what about the uh, stronger economies in Europe, Germany? Not bad, 0.8% growth in Q1, and also, of course, the UK. Um, would you tell your clients to invest in those two markets? Absolutely not, because Germany still has this World War II guilt, so they are falling over themselves to pay out as much as they can. They're now going for this ridiculous thing of a Europe-wide banking authority. Well, we know what that means. The Germans get to pay for everybody else's banking messes, including their own. We also know that Germany was the sick man of Europe a decade ago. Nothing is constant. The only thing that is constant is change, which goes to say that my view is that in five years, Germany is going to become the sick man of Europe again, precisely because its debt is overextended in good old solid Germany itself. Now, let's turn our attention away from Europe and to emerging markets. Okay, now, maybe excluding China, are things um, looking up again? Uh, The MSCI Emerging Markets Index, it it fell a little bit yesterday, but it's been on a pretty good run recently. And the Indian Sensex, of course, is, um, wow, it's up 7% in just the last 10 days. Um, What's what's your view on, on... My view is that all emerging markets, especially China are looking somewhat better. 
Hmm. On China, I feel that the worsening of the economic time has bottomed. If anything, the government knows that because of rising social unrest and because of rising banking crisis, brackets open, shadow banking, brackets closed, that they have to do something to cut those reserve rates to get the economy going again. And I believe that's going to happen within the next three months. Now, on the other emerging markets, India, you quite correctly point out, has done very, very well. That's thanks very much to a huge election victory for Modi. That's at well, least that hasn't been uh, that hasn't come out yet. But I mean, I the, the exit poll shows that he is likely to win, and we'll find out later today if he has. Absolutely, I'm being a bit unoriginal in my forecast, which I've moved <laughs> away from. But I think that what you are finding is that the rising soft commodity prices and indeed some of the metal prices if you go away from the last two days or three days of metal falls have helped these emerging markets on top of which what we're seeing is a major shift in asset allocation people being a little bit disillusioned with the european growth prospects what we were saying before about those extravagant expectations and moving more to other greener pastures really called undervalued emerging markets and that will continue for quite some time so you think that the markets, especially the states, is overvalued? At this stage, yes. You'd asked about a banking crisis before. I'm of the view that the US, with its curious mixture of high-frequency trading and dark pool trading and the re-emergence of all of this collateralized debt stuff is heading straight back into another bubble. But that's a little bit longer away. I can say that for the next two years until it comes right. But I think that you do, that you will find a little bit more emerging markets, but the Americans will still lead just because they're a big, wonderful, strong economy. They don't have this welfare rubbish that Europe has. So stay in US market for the next couple of years. In undervalued stocks, in the staples, and in the um, low cyclicals, absolutely. Now, um, I um, uh, I noted how bullish you were sounding on China earlier. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of worrying signs, though. I mean, the real estate sector, wow, I mean, it could just blow up, right? Yes, just yesterday, we've mm. seen another sign that there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the industry. Um, soon, uh, the, the developer is going to buy a big stake in China Greentown, um, which um, appears to be in um, in some trouble. There's even um, this rumor that um, Alibaba's owner, um, Jack Ma, is going to buy its football team. Um, so um, the, you, you, you're confident that the government has it all under control? Well, first of all, I don't do stocks, as you know, as an economist. So I can only keep at the sort of the 50,000 foot level. Um, and that means that one gets to fall further when one gets these things wrong. But there <laughs> we are. What I mean is that the... It's precisely because of these worries that you were mentioning, say in real estate, say in shadow banking, say in social unrest, say in migration, say in joblessness, strikes, etc., the South China Sea, all of these things are arguing in my mind precisely for an easing so that the government gets back in control by creating jobs and by getting that economy back on its feet. In my mind, they've gone a little bit into the overshoot mode by tightening too much. They can afford to improve the economic time by creating an excess supply of money. And my guess, we all have to have a guess, is that within the next three months, they will be doing that. They will be easing the reserve requirements to inject more mm -hmm. liquidity back into the economy. Well, they will have to. Now, um, 
before uh, we finish this segment, I would just want to um, get your take on the tech sector, which of course has had a big sell-off recently. And then you have companies like Tencent reporting a whacking increase in profits and stock shooting up nearly 6% yesterday. Um, do you like tech stock in general? And do you think at this level, um, best to avoid them? At this level, it's best to avoid them. But I think that the trend is my friend. I see tech as the investment banking of this century, at least of the next 20 years. In other words, that's where all the brains are going to go to because investment banking is very much becoming a highly specialized commodities trading outfit. Look at all the high-frequency trading running through computers. Why do you need guys doing this anymore? So my view would be that the brains, the money, will be earned in tech. Having said that, of course, there was again another extravagant expectation, this time with tech, that it could only go one way, which is always wrong, wrong, wrong. We know that. And that's why my view would be wait with tech, let the thing crash further, and then load up on the well-run tech companies for the very simple reason that that is the way of the future. That is the investment banking of the future. Great. Now, Enzio, I'm going to bring in the next guest now, but do stick around and feel free to join in the discussion. Um, let's say hello now to Sedyajit Das, ex-investment banker, well-known financial commentator and author of the book Extreme Money. Good morning to you. Hello. Good morning. Ah, morning. Good morning. Um, so we have quite a few sort of meaty um, uh, economics issues at, um, that are shifting, that are, that are moving the markets at the moment. And the, 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 this big conundrum in the market that a lot of people are debating is, are we facing more risk from inflation or deflation? Um, so I just want to get your take on that first. Um, let's look at, take a look at, at Europe first, perhaps, because the ECB is now being accused of being too complacent, inflation still very, very low. Um, do you think that Europe uh, is going to risk falling into a deflationary uh, cycle in the near future? Well, I think you have to back up a stage. I think you have to go back four or five years because essentially the policy of central banks around the world and the authorities has been very clear. They're not going to deal with the four problems that we have, which is debt levels, which are too high, global imbalances, the actual entitlement costs and the financialization of the system. They're going to rely on growth and inflation to try to rebalance the economy and reduce the momentum of economic growth. So basically, that is the first and most important issue to understand. And Europe is no different to that. Europe has the same problems as everybody else. The problem with the policy is they're trying to create inflation by increasing the money supply. Hmm. And that is what the low interest rates and also the quantitative easing programs in different forms are trying to do. But as basically Mike Tyson once remarked, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. <laughs> and at the moment, that policy doesn't seem to be working. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of which is that money supply growth on its own can't work. You need velocity of money. And the banking system, particularly in Europe, the transmission mechanisms are actually not working in the way they were, say, pre-crisis. So the actual increase in money supply around the world is being offset to some extent by the reduced velocity of money. The other thing is you have actually massive overcapacity in many, many industries, and this is known as the output gap. 
Mm. And also, I noticed you were talking about things like technology. A lot of that technology has made industries more efficient, and that obviously means that they can actually up-supply very quickly. And you're not going to get inflation unless you get basically an imbalance between demand and supply. Now, the other thing is the cash that's flowing into the economy is just sitting on bank balance sheets mm-hmm. or on corporate balance Companies sheets. And this spending. is fueling a lot of the merger and acquisition mm-hmm. activity that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So all of those are actually now creating a longer-term problem. The other interesting thing is if you look around the world, there are other sources of deflationary pressure one of which is low rates actually allow weak businesses to survive. So what they do is the cash flows are directed to just to cover interest. But you don't actually have these businesses failing because banks don't want to write off the loans. But that means these guys have no pricing power and basically are going to keep prices low. Mm -hmm. And some of the pressures we're seeing in emerging markets like China, and in my view, China is very clearly trying to devalue its currency, as are indeed other emerging markets. And they're going to also, together with Japan, be exporting deflation. Now, you are going to see some pockets of inflation. And I noticed your guest mentioned commodities. And that tends to be driven by two things, specific supply-demand imbalances, and also the fact that commodities are are priced in U.S. dollars. So they're very much dependent on U.S. dollar exchange rates. But overall, if I look at a lot of the commodity sectors, there's a lot of supply coming on board, and unless demand picks up, and that really is talking about China, Mm, then we are not going to get huge inflation. And that has huge implications, particularly for Europe. Well, you've covered a, a lot of grounds there, <laughs> so Yajit. Um, I'm going to um, just focus on a, a couple of issues and maybe you can expand on them. Now, first of all, you're saying basically that QE has failed, right? And it's created a lot of, um, um, well, it's created credit bubbles around the world. Um, so what's going to happen next? I mean, we in Hong Kong are particularly worried about asset price bubble bursting. As you know, the housing market here has become the sure. most expensive in the world, the the stock market is a little bit less frothy these days. But you know, experts are now saying the U.S. interest rate is going to stay low for a couple of years. Can we maybe relax a bit on that front? Well, you may remember that basically in about I think it was 2008, 2009, when the American bubble burst and uh, the economy went into a tailspin, there's a satirical magazine in the U.S. called The Onion, and it had a headline saying, Americans demand a new bubble to invest in. And I think central banks have obliged around the world because they've created these asset bubbles around the world. Now, if you go back and when Chairman Ben Bernanke gave testimony before Congress, he made very clear that he actually thought that the impact on the real economy was going to be very, very low. Mm. And indeed, Fed papers bear that out. I'll give you one example of that. The only real channel through which QE affects the real economy that seems to be working is that well, the wealth effect. In other words, as asset prices gone up, you basically encourage additional consumption. Now, effectively, the U.S., for instance, asset prices have forced higher wealth, which is about up about twenty-five trillion. But only about one percent of that is flowing through into consumption, which is about a quarter of the average for, say, from nineteen fifty to about two thousand and ten. So it's not working, and all it's doing is feeding mm-hmm. these credit bubbles. And I think the credit bubbles are going to continue as long as the monetary methamphetamine supply. So when do you expect U.S. to raise rates? 
I don't think there is any immediate prospects of raising rates. They are obviously actually curtailing the expansion of their balance sheet. But if you read between the lines, uh, Janet Yellen, uh, the new chairman of the Federal Reserve, is at pains to point out that there is no real plan to actually increase interest rates. And to give you an idea of what would happen... For now. For now. But, but even longer term, if you push up interest rates by 1%, the G7 countries alone would have additional interest costs of $1.4 trillion. Wow. And so essentially, it's not really possible to do that. And there is a very significant analogy here. In 1996 when Japan went to a zero interest rate policies and the JGBs dipped, I think, below 3%, everybody expected those rates to normalize within a matter of a couple of years. And here we are, almost 20 years later, and they haven't normalized. Now, speaking of Japan, let's say hello now to Masao Tirion, Japan economist at Capital Economics, who's been waiting patiently on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning, Marcel. Um, so we were just talking about um, the J- Japan economy, how it's been, you know, um, st- st- deep in the doldrums for years. But then yesterday, wow, GDP grew growth 5.9% year on year in the first quarter, which is, you know, it's practically emerging markets rate. Um, so what's your take on it? Is it just because of the new t- uh, sales tax that they uh, that uh, they've introduced, which forced people to spend more in Q1 and it's not going to last? Well, I mean, the the um, a lot of the increase was actually due to the consumption tax hike. You can see that in the, in the private consumption numbers, which were the key driver of, of the overall increase. But the upside surprise relative to the consensus was uh, basically from investment and from net exports. Um, to be honest, I'm a bit confused by these figures because um, the, they show a 6% jump in, in exports last quarter. The monthly data actually show falling exports. So this is the, the largest discrepancy between the monthly data and the GDP data that mm-hmm. we've ever seen. So we, we might yet get a, some downward revision in, in the second estimate. And the other slightly dodgy part is, is the business investment data. Because, again, uh, we've seen a strong increase here. But machinery orders, which are the most reliable indicator of uh, business investment, have, have actually started to fall in the first quarter. So, again, we may see, see another... Uh, downward revision here, but regardless of, of the, the exact fine number, we will have a, a very strong increase in the first quarter. But obviously, in the second quarter, the, the economy will most likely weaken sharply simply because the consumers rein in spending. Hmm. Now, um, let's talk about exports for a minute. Um, the 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 top line exports number are quite encouraging, but at the same time, um, it's been pointed out that the value of exports minus imports actually fell in the first quarter. And then the yen staying weak means that costs are, of course, getting higher. Um, do you think Japan is exporting um, enough at the moment? Um, well, I think the, the, uh, the firms have, have not really cut prices. Hello? Sorry, I'm getting some strange noise here. Um, yeah, e- exports, uh, f- companies have not really cut prices, so that's why the exports have not picked up. But that's simply because firms have preferred to, to reap uh, the benefits of, of the, the, the weekly yen in terms of higher mm-hmm. yen revenues, to, which has boost, boosted their profits. 
So it was probably in the interest of firms not to cut prices and if they benefited from it. Okay. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, so thank you very much, Marcel Tillion, Japan economist at Capital Economics. And earlier we had Sajid Das, investment banker, turned financial commentator. And um, here's the weather coming up. Sorry about the music injection. The uh, mainly cloudy with a few showers today, maximum temperature 30 degrees, and we can expect some sunny intervals over the weekend. This is Enid Cho. Thank you for listening to Money for Nothing. And it's 8.30. Here's the news with Janice Wong. China's top military leader has said an oil rig will continue drilling in contested waters in the South China Sea despite riots targeting Chinese businesses in Vietnam, which attempted to block the rig's operation. General Fang Fenghe was speaking during a visit to the United States. It's very normal behaviour for China to conduct this drilling activity within our own territorial waters. Yet Vietnam dispatched vessels to disrupt that activity, and that's something that we are not able to accept. What we're going to do is ensure the safety of the oil rig and that operations continue. General Fang also urged Washington not to take sides after it described China's decision to install the rig